This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 20th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Should the FCC have a roving power to regulate speech on the airwaves in the name of the public interest? Or should freedom of speech extend even to government-owned airwaves? Brendan Carr is a commissioner on the FCC. He says he takes the view consistent with the First Amendment. We talked about that dispute, the ongoing rollout of 5G capabilities, and those infuriating robocalls yesterday. Your colleague at the FCC, Jessica Rosenworcel, uh, tweeted out uh, recently, Today you won't see cigarette ads on television, but nothing stops the ads for e-cigarettes. Even if they are targeted at kids, the FCC can help put a stop to this, and I think it should. And this, then she tweets out a, a column that she wrote for USA Today. Uh, the FCC has a mandate to manage the public airwaves in the public interest. Uh, what's wrong with prohibiting ads for e-cigarettes the same way that uh, the FCC long ago prohibited ads for uh, cigarettes on television? Well, I think it's actually a, a pretty dangerous new theory for censoring speech. Uh, the background, as you indicated, is a 1970s era law that prohibits actual cigarette advertising on TV and radio, but that law does not apply to e-cigarettes. And so in this circumstance, the proposal put forward by my colleague would be for the FCC to grab our general public interest authority uh, and based on uh, the assessment of the public interest to censor this particular form of speech. So I think there's really two problems with it. One is statutorily, the agency has not been given authority by Congress to ban e-cigarette ads the way in 1970 Congress banned regular cigarette ads. And secondarily, once you go beyond a statute and claim that purely the public interest lets the FCC start censoring speech, well, then that really looks like a roving mandate uh, to police speech that we like or don't like. And then that sweeps in far more than just TV commercials for e-cigarettes. How is the public interest mandate used with respect to allowing advertising? Is it invoked at all to regulate advertisements in any form? Well, the FCC has general authority to regulate in the public interest, and you've seen the agency use that authority in a variety of contexts. For example, when we review a merger that's before the agency, we have to decide whether the merger is in the public interest. But if you look at the regulations that touch on speech, for instance, uh, there's a prohibition on obscenity on broadcast television. That prohibition comes from a specific statute that Congress passed that prohibits obscenity. So whatever one thinks of the constitutional question in a case like that, the FCC is merely applying a statute narrowly uh, passed by Congress, whereas if we were to move away from that and purely rely on our public interest authority to start censoring speech, well, one of the problems there is there's no limiting principle. Whatever three unelected FCC commissioners think doesn't serve the, quote, public interest, could all of a sudden be banned from the public airwaves. So untethered from any statutory hook, uh, it presents a real danger. And I think we need to return it to the dustbin of ideas. Ms. Rosenworcel, uh, her argument seems to hinge on what she views as uh, targeting advertisements to uh, children uh, for e-cigarettes. She views it uh, as uh, something that uh, because there are potential health complications from nicotine aside from whatever else is in uh, regular 
uh, cigarettes. Your argument is that Ms. Rosenworcel should, in fact, be making her pitch to Congress to pass some sort of specific statute and, and have the FCC not be directly involved in content regulation with respect to advertising. Is that right? That's certainly part of it. If you step back, the science is actually uh, pretty interesting when you look at e-cigarettes. And I'm not here to uh, defend uh, or, or, or not defend e-cigarettes, but the state of the science is pretty interesting in terms of the arguments about them being net-net uh, a harm reducer because they help people move off of actual cigarettes, which contain tobacco and nicotine and therefore uh, have very known and serious health consequences. But what's clear is that as part of this broader public debate about the role of e-cigarettes, Supreme Court precedent has been clear that the federal government shouldn't use censorship to tilt that public debate. So the commissioner, my colleagues, anybody is more than welcome to express their own views on whether e-cigarettes are net benefit or a net harm for society. But our first instinct, particularly as communications regulators, should not be to use censorship to move that debate in our preferred direction. And the Supreme Court and the First Amendment have been very clear on that. Now, her argument seems to be broader that it, this kind of regulation shouldn't necessarily apply just to e-cigarettes, but anything that implicates public health. I certainly think that's the natural implication. I think her theory as proposed is limited to e-cigarettes. But once you move away from a narrow uh, statutory directive to purely looking at the public interest as a basis for regulating, think about a lot of the other public debates out there uh, that even have more concrete evidence than e-cigarettes. Think about automobiles, for instance. There's thirty to 40,000 highway deaths a year. Think about alcohol advertising as a contributing factor, uh, alcohol itself, to a lot of those accidents. Well, this new theory would then, uh, if you get three people at the FCC to vote for it, enable the FCC to stop automobile ads, stop beer ads. So I think it's pretty sweeping. Again, once you move away from a, a narrow statutory direction from Congress and purely relying on the, quote, public interest, that's what makes this such a new theory of censorship that I think we need to shut down pretty quickly. Where is this headed? The FCC is, you know, it's a uh, standalone commission. Are there votes on the FCC to use its public interest authority to regulate the content of advertisements? Hopefully it's not going anywhere. So this was one theory proposed by one of five FCC commissioners, uh, a Democrat, and so I don't believe there's a majority at the FCC who would subscribe to this theory. But the membership on the FCC changes very regularly. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to speak up now and say the FCC is not going to be engaging in public interest censorship. Because again, you move out of the space of commercial advertisements, take political speech. Uh, if a candidate for public office or even a public citizen is expressing views that some on the FCC determined today or tomorrow are not in the, quote, public interest. Well, under this theory, the agency would then be empowered uh, to shut that speech down. That's why I think it's a dangerous precedent, regardless of the merits of, of e-cigarettes. You can like them or not like them, but it's the legal theory that's being claimed here to go at e-cigarettes that could be pretty sweeping uh, based on just the three views of, an F of FCC officials. Are public airwaves understood to be uh, a platform for the expression of the freedom of speech? I mean, the government 
essentially owns the public airwaves. Uh, do we understand the, the airwaves to be something where free speech reigns? Absolutely. I think those of us at the FCC, uh, particularly in these times, have always been affirming our view of the First Amendment. We don't regulate the content of broadcast uh, based on the content of the messages being uh, uh, broadcast. We take a, a role that respects the First Amendment. That's why I think this idea is so inconsistent with that. And that's not to say, again, that we don't have regulations that touch on speech. Again, we have a specific statute that prohibits obscenities, for instance, uh, broadcast over the year. But again, whatever anyone thinks of the constitutional question in that case, uh, it's at least tied in a narrow sense. There's not the risk of it sweeping in uh, far more content purely based on the fact that FCC officials may agree or disagree with it. Moments before we began speaking, I received a robocall. This has been an increasing problem for people who own uh, cell phones in the United States. Where does it stand right now, and what are the general ideas about how it ought to be uh, corrected, or if the FCC has a role in correcting these calls that you know many people are receiving four and five times a day? Yeah, the American public are uh, sick and tired of receiving robocalls, to put it bluntly. It's one of... Uh, one of the only two issues that when I'm walking down the street in my neighborhood, people would literally throw their windows open and yell at me at the street, what is the FCC doing about robocalls? And what I can say is we are doing a lot. So this FCC has elevated robocalls to our top enforcement priority, and it pretty quickly gets in the weeds. It's a very technical area, and how do you trace calls back and make sure they're being blocked properly? But the FCC is very focused on this, and we're putting a lot of new rules in place uh, that can target robocalls. So hopefully consumers will start seeing the results of that very soon. To what extent is, uh, I suppose, more freedom uh, an answer to the problem of robocalls? Like it, it's, it's uh, challenging, I think, for a lot of people that I know to find an adequate app that will you know, perform really well at blocking certain callers and not others that is allowing welcomed calls to come in. Is, is there anything that can be done that doesn't involve new restrictions? Sure. There's actually regulations in place that to some extent have been hamstringing your telephone companies with respect to their ability to block calls, rules that essentially require, you know, all calls to be passed through. So one of the steps the FCC has taken is to provide exceptions to those rules to give your telephone companies more freedom to block known bad actors, uh, known robocalls. Auctions for 5G spectrum are uh, underway this year. Uh, what does that mean for people who want to have the sort of much higher speed wireless access and where does, where does that auction stand? Yeah, so we're generally in the midst of this transition from 4G wireless, which everyone knows now, to the next generation of wireless known as 5G. And it's really going to be a transformative technology, uh, including from an economic perspective. So essentially, 5G is the upgrade to wireless that we need to unleash this new wave of innovation. Think about connected cars, the Internet of Things, virtual reality, new telehealth applications, to make all that a reality, we need to upgrade our wireless network. One of the big things that we've been doing at the FCC to get there is trying to get the government out of the way and let the private sector compete 
on a level playing field. So for instance, we've had a lot of regulatory red tape at the federal level and at the state and local level, essentially permitting requirements that are really out of date and don't match this new technology, this new wireless technology. So we've been going through and updating our regulations to make it a lot easier to deploy this new technology because we want to see it deployed in every community across the country. Who should govern these networks? Well, this is a private sector deployment, and the U.S. is not alone in looking to deploy these new networks. There's competitors around the world, in China, for instance. They have a very different economic system than we do in the U.S. They can essentially snap their fingers and through central planning at the federal level in China, deploy these new networks. And so to some extent, this race to 5G, this idea of which country is going to be the first is important because it's going to dictate who has economic leadership in the technology space for the next decade. But it's also a battle between economic systems. So some people would look at the central planning that they're doing in China and think that's an insurmountable advantage. I'm not one of them. I believe very strongly in the U.S. free market system. And our path to winning the race to 5G is getting the government out of the way so that the private sector companies in the U.S. can invest and compete. So the U.S. Conference of Mayors has been uh, fairly critical uh, so far of this uh, 5G rollout. Why is that? Yeah, we've had a mix of support. Some state and local officials agreed with the FCC's decisions. Others, as you pointed out, uh, have not. And at its core, what we did is we took a look at state and local laws regulating the rollout of this 5G network, essentially uh, millions of new small cells. And we found a handful of state and local governments that were looking to tax the deployment of 5G. Essentially, they understand that this new infrastructure has to be built. And so a lot of big cities were looking to generate revenue for their own coffers by charging excessive fees for the rollout of this 5G infrastructure. So the FCC stepped in and said that we can't impose those types of 5G taxes because they would be an effective prohibition on the service where they would limit where the service goes. And again, given the economic upside to 5G deployment, our goal is for every single community in the country to see it. So by stepping in and limiting the fees that state and local governments charge for reviewing this rollout, our record shows we're going to see more 5G deployed in more communities around the country. Tom Cochran, who is the, the CEO of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, characterized this uh, rollout essentially as an unlawful taking of local property. Yeah. So at its core, again, what we're looking at at the FCC is cities and towns certainly get to recover all of their costs associated with reviewing the rollout of this 5G infrastructure. And if anyone attaches anything to a city-owned piece of property, for instance, a light pole or a street lamp, the city is getting fully compensated for its costs in that situation. So there's no taking. What we really were targeting here, again, is you could have cities like New York and San Francisco uh, that are looking to charge, say, five dollars or $6,000 to attach a small antenna to an existing utility pole, Whereas other forward-looking cities like Phoenix were charging figures in the order of $50 and $100. So we really were looking around the country and saw some significant disparities among some of the biggest cities. And we were simply acting uh, to create a playing field where we're going to see a lot more deployment across the country. For people who were proponents of Title II regulation, 
for uh, the internet service providers. Uh, they called it net neutrality at the time. What does 5G mean for uh, rural access to a much faster, uh, you know, the real internet, so to speak? Well, since the FCC repealed the Title II decision, uh, what we've seen is pretty dramatic, uh, not in the ways that the headlines would have told you back then, but internet speeds have increased, deployments have increased. I've spent a lot of time at manufacturing plants across the country from Florida to Texas to Iowa. And at all of these facilities, uh, they are increasing their production of a, essentially the physical infrastructure needed for the internet. And 5G, I think, again, goes to all of that in this sense, which is at its core, what most people are worried about is competition. They want to see more competition for their broadband dollars. And that's essentially what 5G is going to give us. One of the things that 5G is going to do is enable providers to deliver fiber-like speeds wirelessly to your home. So where right now, you may have only one option for a high-speed internet option at your house. With 5G, you could see another competitor offering fiber-like speeds and services, but at a much lower cost because you don't have to trench conduit that last mile to connect the house with actual wire. Brendan Carr is a member of the Federal Communications Commission. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 